join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The news around this third wave of the pandemic just seems to be getting worse and worse. The province has announced that COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and intensive care unit occupancy are at their highest levels since the coronavirus became part of our daily lives. As a result, the lockdown will last another two weeks beyond what was already planned. Meanwhile, some of what was planned has already been jettisoned as many in the province mutinied against what they saw as nonsensical measures. All that, plus an interview with a member of the province's vaccine distribution task force to fact check whether doses really are sitting in freezers instead of getting into people's arms. It's Tuesday, April 20th, 2021, so let's get to it. John Michael, we got new modeling numbers last Friday, and sadly, they are off the charts. Uh, well, actually, let me rephrase that. They're on the charts, but they're near the top of those charts. So let's start there. What were the major takeaways from the health tables briefing? The short version is that the province's intensive care units are almost at the breaking point. And unless something changes quickly, uh, doctors are going to need to start doing what we thought we had avoided in the first and second waves, uh, determining who gets access to hospital health care and who doesn't. And uh, we know that when we have insufficient numbers of ICU beds to go around for the number of COVID patients uh, that we have. Uh, we saw this experience in other countries in the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, the death toll can get much, much higher. Um, that doesn't even get to the issue of non-COVID patients who can't get into a hospital right now. Uh, we don't know what the death toll from that is. We know that it's not zero. Um, and to top it all off, the projections that the modeling table uh, presented show that vaccinations aren't the key to get out of this uh, wave right now. This has been true uh, before in previous presentations. They put a bit of a finer point on it uh, last week saying that, you know, the even really optimistic projections of uh, vaccine throughput uh, don't do as much as public health measures can right now. We have to rely on uh, stronger public health measures. And, uh, you know, presented with uh, this, uh, you know, testimony, I guess, from the uh, science table, uh, the government then on Friday afternoon uh, announced uh, new public health measures, though their relationship to the scientific advice they got is a question. <laughs> a, a question is a gentle way of putting it. Let's just re recap here. We have we have been told that the, the two really safest places you can be right now are kind of alone at home or at home with just the bubble of people that you have been with for the last year, uh, or conversely, um, outdoors, where the virus is uh, not as catching, obviously, as it is in other congregate care settings and so on. So when the government did announce on Friday that uh, golf courses and soccer pitches and outdoor tennis courts and playgrounds would all be closed and off limits. Well, people raised H-E double hockey sticks all over the place and the government relented. Why don't you just take us through that? What happened there? The government made this announcement on Friday that they were closing all of these outdoor amenities. And um, <laughs> I guess as a journalist, it's not... Um, 
it's, it's not great to sort of disclose that I was furious at the announcement that they were closing playgrounds because uh, I have a young child and literally being, bringing her to uh, uh, playgrounds is uh, one of the only things that has kept her and I both sane in the last year. Um, but I thought I was helping keep you sane. Uh, <laughs> you and my child. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, parents were furious and, you know, all of these other uh, outdoor amenities, you know, there are people who have been, you know, helping their own mental health by playing tennis, by, you know, uh, playing golf, uh, by running around in soccer pitches, you know, these uh, and all of those outdoor amenities, by the way, aside from children's playgrounds, those are all still closed uh, under the, the current uh, stay at home order. Um, the government says that it was trying to reduce mobility. And it is it is true and correct that we are trying to reduce mobility overall uh, to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But it, it, it honestly doesn't make a lot of sense for the government on the one hand to uh, tell people to uh, you know, stay out of outdoor spaces while they frankly didn't announce very much at all that was new about uh, the places where we know COVID is spreading, uh, and that's uh, workplaces. That's you know essential workplaces where people cannot work from home, where uh, you know people are in, for example, in Amazon warehouses or slaughterhouses where people are working in uh, cramped conditions with less than medically ideal levels of ventilation. So. None of it seemed to be actually based on the scientific advice that the government had uh, received. And in fact, uh, members of the science table have uh, spoken publicly to the media in the last several days uh, about how the government is not following their advice. And uh, more than one have said they considered resigning in protest over it. Yeah, let me follow up on that. I, I, I did notice those comments as well in the media. And um, I wonder, I mean, people in this position always have to face two prospects. Number one, you resign, which is a good headline for a day, and it does indicate a lack of confidence in the government. But then, of course, they appoint somebody else to take your position, and therefore uh, the person who replaces you may not have your expertise, may not be prepared to speak truth to power, may be telling the government only what they want to hear, and therefore your resignation may not have achieved anything at the end of the day. I guess that's what all of these people uh, who are on the science table are, are pondering right now, right? How can they best be of service, either by resigning and causing a kerfuffle or staying in there and hoping they can convince the government to do what they think is the best thing to do? I don't envy them the dilemma because on the one hand, uh, you have to think about and you know these are these are professionals in in the sort of capital p profession sense of the word they, they actually have to think hard about their professional reputation and it it is not helping anybody if they stay with a government that is really visibly publicly ignoring their advice uh at the same time it is also uh Frankly, it is an open question as to whether uh, the science table, if, if, for example, if they resigned en masse in protest, who would replace them? Would they even be replaced? I mean, there's no shortage of uh, you know advice coming to the government right now. And frankly, um, the science table, uh, the, the government could simply decide not to replace them. 
uh, and and that would arguably be the worst outcome. So yeah, it it is absolutely a um, a really tough decision, and I, Lord knows, I'm not in a position to <laughs> tell them what the the right decision to make is. No, but many Ontarians felt they were, and that was one of the things that was so interesting about the past weekend was that. The government's directives for so many Ontarians seem to go against what the facts were suggesting. As we have said, the safest place to be during the pandemic, besides alone at home, is outdoors. And yet they wanted to shout, shut down. Um, well, let me colloquially put this. They wanted to shut down outdoors. <laughs> Conversely, uh, some of the most virulent hotspots for COVID are the big manufacturing and employment spots, as you pointed out. And yet they're still allowed to be open. And there has been still no move to implement a comprehensive paid sick days plan which everybody is calling for, including, on the agenda last week, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, who said they're open to having that kind of plan in place. So, okay, JMM, you make sense of all that for us, please. Uh, honestly, I cannot. Um, I, I haven't covered as many governments at Queen's Park as you have. Uh, I have just covered really the one, Kathleen Wins. And, you know, I was willing uh, and ready to criticize the Liberals when I thought they were making errors or when I thought they were misleading the public. But... Never for a minute did I think that Kathleen Wynne simply didn't uh, grasp the nature of the problems her government faced. Um, the decisions that this government announced on Friday and then only partially reversed over the weekend uh, leave me actually wondering whether a year into this pandemic, do they actually understand the, the contours of the problem. Like, I, I don't understand how you announce prohibitions on outdoor activity while keeping uh, every single workplace that the government has previously deemed essential open. Uh, it, it, it feels like they they just do not understand it. And that's a really um, alarming place to be right now. Well, let me pursue another angle with you, because I, I found another thing particularly fascinating about the response to the latest directives, and that was that even police services across Ontario balked at implementing the measures that the government introduced. For example, the Solicitor General talked about giving cops the right to inflict $750 citations on citizens who were outside their homes without, in the view of the government, good reason, quote-unquote. And almost immediately... At first a trickle, but then dozens of police services went on record as saying that may be the new policy, but we are not going to implement it. I mean, imagine that. Police services basically said to the elected government of the day, we are not going to do that. And the government then backed down, sort of. What happened there? It seems to have been... Uh a bridge too far for uh, basically everyone. Uh, the the infringement of people's uh, civil liberties. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I shouldn't make a joke like this, but, you know, a, a cynic would say, my God, if you found the charter infringement that not even the police will support. <laughs> Uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association was going to uh, fight it in court. Uh, they called it uh, Black Friday. Um you know, these are measures that we have seen in some European countries. Uh, we have not tried them in Ontario uh, to this extent before. Uh, there seems to be no appetite for it uh, in the, the, the general populace, no appetite uh, from the police to enforce it. And, and I think this is the important part. Uh, the government was asking private citizens to bear all the pain here. 
right? And this goes back to what we were talking about, paid sick leave and, you know, essential workplaces. You know, it is one thing to ask citizens to bear this burden because it is a, a, a grim necessity. And it is another to say that the public is going to bear all of this burden, but that Amazon warehouses and condo construction sites can still buzz along happily. Um, they were asking too much, I think, of the public and not asking enough of uh, other uh, other parties in this pandemic. Let's just take 20 seconds here and remind people that you and I have both written columns about this issue and the last, uh, well, whatever, 72 or 90 hours or so in the province of Ontario. Uh, the gist of my column is that uh, democracy kind of worked here. The government made a decision, the public rose up in anger, and the government kind of backed down a bit. Uh, that's sort of how democracy is supposed to work, a government responsive to the public. What's the nature of the piece you wrote? My piece is uh, basically wondering how angry the uh, Tory backbench is right now. Uh, you know, there's clearly uh, a lot of anger uh, outside of the PC party and uh, the backbenchers inside the PC party who, you know, don't sit in cabinet but have to defend a lot of the, the government's decisions, I think, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting in the next week to see whether they use some of the leverage they have. We are going to return to this issue of whether there is discontent or how much there is on the backbenches of the PC party uh, a little later in the podcast. But let's move now and look at, at the vaccination situation, because on Friday, the premier said that he's waiting on NACI, NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, to change the recommendation on AstraZeneca. And then Sunday evening, the province announced that they are lowering the age to 40, in which you can be eligible to get the AZ shot, even though there was not yet a new recommendation from NACI on that. Okay, JMM. That's another good acronym, JMM. <laughs> what, what happened there? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the most important uh, element of this news is that I personally, John Michael McGrath, am now eligible to get an AstraZeneca shot. <laughs> Congratulations. So, uh, and, I, and I will be working to do that this week. Um, no, what happened here is that um, Health Canada actually has the um, legal regulatory power over, uh, you know, how it is legal to administer uh, vaccines in Canada. NACI is an advisory body uh, that both the federal and provincial governments obviously uh, give a lot of uh, respect to their recommendations. Uh, people might remember earlier in the pandemic when we uh, basically all the provinces have uh, spaced out the, the intervals between the two shots that people are supposed to get. Uh, they were waiting for NACI advice to do that. Uh, when they got it, they moved. Uh, this was starting to get more um, pressing <laughs> because uh, AstraZeneca vaccines were starting to uh, stock up in uh, provincial uh, fridges, so to speak. Uh, certainly in Ontario, that was the case. Um, NACI was recommending that uh, we limit the use of AstraZeneca to people 55 and over, but in Ontario anyway, uh, so many people who are 55 and over are already eligible for the Pfizer and Moderna doses. And so they were preferring those vaccines and AstraZeneca was sitting around unused. So in order to basically clear out this inventory and, and like these vaccines 
they do have expiry dates on them. Um, Ontario and now numerous other provinces have announced that people uh, 40 and up will be eligible for AstraZeneca. And, uh, you know, I guess we will see that last uh, until supplies run out uh, because that's the other catch in all this, at least so far. We haven't really gotten a, a regular, consistent supply of AstraZeneca so far. Let's also note that... Um now, this was kind of unusual, I think. The province said it's looking at bringing in extra healthcare staff from other provinces or even from the United States. And we saw something about uh, the Premier of Newfoundland, whose wife is in healthcare. She was offering her services to the province of Ontario. What are the prospects of any of that happening? You know, I, I think we're going to see some of it happen. Uh, I, I don't know how much of it is going to happen. Um, the the Atlantic provinces in particular, the, these are the places where, thanks to... Um, their own superior public policy choices. They have uh, the most healthcare capacity to spare right now, uh, but they're all relatively small provinces, right? I mean, the, all of the Atlantic provinces put together are smaller than the GTA. Um, so they just don't really have the, the staff to make a huge difference relative to uh, Ontario's need right now. Um, we might get some from the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is sort of coming out of this um, phase they, with a much higher rate of vaccination. Um, you know, it, it, it will all help, uh, you know, at the margin. Uh, but I, I just don't I couldn't tell you how much it's going to matter. Uh, I, th I think the, <laughs> the the real war, so to speak, is still going to be how uh, effective public health measures are. Uh, that said, I am willing to personally express my gratitude to the East Coast by planning a vacation there when that's possible and legal again. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I'm sure they're looking forward to meeting you and hearing you regale them with stories of uh, Ontario politics. Speaking of which, let's turn our focus to that now. Uh, since we are the On Poly podcast, and let's look at some of the politics in all of this. Now, the opposition rhetoric as a result of the past weekend's activities is really starting to heat up. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca uh, yesterday reiterated his call for a COVID czar who would take these decisions about opening up or closing up out of the political realm. What do you think about the advisability of doing that? You know, as a, a political message, I think it's fine. Uh, you know, it's 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 political communications and it's it's you know, it will do what it is supposed to with voters or or it won't and they'll move on to a different message. But <laughs> you know me, Steve, you know that I'm the kind of person that when I heard COVID czar, uh, I, I immediately was trying to think about like, how would this actually work in the real world? And I, I don't understand how it would. Um, so, you know, let's take paid sick leave as an example, because the scientific advisors have been really consistent and really clear that they believe that it's necessary. Um, what happens when the COVID czar says we need paid sick days and the Ford cabinet says no? What happens when the PC majority in the legislature votes it down as they have repeatedly? You know, we, we have the machinery of responsible government in Canada. And this feels like a way of trying to imagine our way out of it. But you can't. The The Tories have a majority in the legislature and Doug Ford is the premier. And uh, unless one or both of those things changes, you, you can't try and plan around them somehow. Well, this is where we return to our earlier topic of whether there is or isn't discontent on the Tory backbench, because Liberal leader Del Duca also suggested that Doug Ford 
has demonstrated he's incapable of governing and has lost the authority to do so and should resign. Those were the words Del Duca used. And he even suggested that there are PC backbenchers who agree with him, although he wouldn't say who they are or how many there are. Now, when he said that at yesterday's news conference, I did suggest to him that probably the same thing happened when he was in cabinet, when the liberals were in power, because government backbenchers do occasionally love to mouth off to opposition <laughs> members about how bad things are. You know, there's nothing new in that. And I wondered whether this was any different. And Del Duca said it was. He said that the illnesses and deaths being suffered brought the complaints to a whole new level. And I think he said, this isn't like disagreeing on whether to lower the speed limit on the highways. It's qualitatively different. If, in fact, there are unhappy backbenchers in the PC caucus, how seriously do you think we should take those comments? You're right that 99 times out of 100 uh, disaffected backbenchers, I mean, it's a story we could all write almost blindfolded at this point. It's, it, you know, if you, if you stick around in politics long enough, you will see this. But it is different this week for uh, a very... Uh, simple functional reason. Uh, the government still hasn't passed its budget bill. Uh, people may remember it feels like a million years ago, though it was just March 24th that uh, Peter Bethlen Falvey presented the budget to the legislature. And there's a piece of legislation that goes with that budget. And it has moved its way through the process to the point where it is now back, it will be back before the legislature uh, for its third and final reading vote uh, this week. Uh, but but that's must pass legislation. Uh, it if nothing else, it is the, the really the foundation of the government's pandemic response for the next several months. And, you know, normally, hey, they've got a majority. This wouldn't even be worth talking about. But the Tory backbench is furious. And if they are furious enough, they could actually hold their own government hostage. Um, the opposition, because it's a, a majority legislature at the moment, the opposition doesn't have the numbers to threaten to defeat the government on this. But the opposition plus maybe 12 uh, Tory MPPs uh, would be enough to credibly threaten uh, the government's survival, really. Um, that's like the nuclear option. And, you know, I, I should say that I really don't think it's going to go that far. I think, you know, Canadian politics tends to revert to the boring mean. <laughs> and you should probably assume that will be this the, the case in this week. Uh, but Normally, I wouldn't even be talking about this. It would be inconceivable that uh, a majority government's budget wouldn't pass. But tempers are so high and nerves are so frayed right now uh, that I think it's absolutely worth talking about. Twelve discontented MPPs, though, prepared to mutiny against their own party and premier. That's a pretty tall order for the opposition. I mean, that's never happened. No. And <laughs> it... it, it it is not the most likely outcome, but if they don't use the leverage they have now, they're never getting it back, right? I mean, by the next budget, it will be re-election season. And if they just let this moment pass, the the government is going to regain all of the control over the agenda, uh, especially since uh, <laughs> we haven't even talked about this, but the, you know, the, on Sunday, the NDP uh, announced, uh, or alleged rather, that the government is looking to shut down the legislature at the end of the week. Uh, the uh, government House leader, Paul Calandra, says uh, that they 
or at least said on Sunday that uh, they are looking to protect the safety of legislative staff. Uh, on Monday, he then said that the government has no plans to prorogue. That might be a technical dodge. We'll see. But, um, you know, if if the backbench wants to extract any kind of change in behavior, let's say, from the premier or cabinet, uh, this moment is really their last chance to do it. Yeah. Now, one last note. I got a message last night from a, how do I, I, I want to protect this person's identity. Um, let's just say a, a prominent, high-ranking, greater Toronto area politician. I'll put it that way saying there are strong rumbles out there that uh, a cabinet shuffle is in the offing. That could include Rod Phillips, the former finance minister, coming back into cabinet, and education minister Stephen Lecce being shuffled elsewhere. Now, we get these rumors of shuffles all the time. There has not, for the record, been a uh, cabinet shuffle since before the pandemic happened. And you know that uh, you know a, a significant percentage of the members of this cabinet have really probably worked longer and harder hours than ever before, uh, so it's not unreasonable that there'd be a shuffle right now. Um, and and these rumors seemed better and more deeply sourced than most cabinet shuffle rumors. Let me put it that way. What are you hearing? Uh, well, I have to say that um, I, I'm uh, on this particular file relying on the work of uh, yourself and other reporters. I have not started beating the bushes on this particular issue. But, you know, there is a lot of um, speculation in public, I would say, that uh, in particular Stephen Lecce and the, um, let's say, reversal last week of uh, one day saying that schools would stay open and then the very next day announcing that schools were going to stay closed, um, you know, that that represents uh, at minimum <laughs> a, a clear disagreement between uh, a premier and his cabinet minister, or it's a massive reversal, or it's a government that's not really in control of the education file, uh, none of which uh, are particularly good news for Stephen Lecce. Um, we had NDP leader Andrew Horvath yesterday uh, calling for the Solicitor General Sylvia Jones resignation based on the um, similar reversal on the issue of uh, police powers and closing playgrounds. Um you know, she, her job could be in jeopardy. Um, you know, some of this stuff is, it's difficult to ascribe responsibility sometimes because you never know whether these ministers are freelancing on their own or whether they, maybe they're being blamed for directives that in fact came from the premier's office. Um, but that <laughs> the privilege of being the premier is that uh, ministers answer to you, not the other way around. Oh, ministers are cannon fodder for the premier. There is no question. <laughs> that is their job. Their job is to take all the incoming and, you know, at, at all costs, save the silverware, right? Protect the premier himself. Uh, okay, let's do one more thing here, JMM. And that is, uh, of course, you and I have both done a lot of interviews during this pandemic with a lot of experts. But I will tell you that I'm not sure I've heard a more explicit, honest, clear version of where we're at in terms of the vaccine rollout than in the following interview that we're about to present. Just a note, we recorded this on Friday, April 16th, before the Ontario government announced it was dropping the eligibility age for AstraZeneca to 40. So with that in mind, here's epidemiologist and a member of Ontario's Vaccine Distribution Task Force, Dr. Isaac Bogosh from Toronto's University Health Network.
Generally speaking, how well do you think the vaccine distribution rollout is going so far? There are certainly challenges. We have to be transparent about that. Some things are going okay, but there are significant issues that I think we need to iron out. I'm totally happy to dive into both uh, silos, if you will. Sure. Let's let, let's start right now. What's not working as well as you'd like to see it be working? Okay, so we're going to start on. The, we'll start off with what's not working before what's working. So what's not working? <laughs> hey, I'm in media. That's where we start. I love it. Okay, <laughs> I'm all in. Uh, I'll just follow your lead. But yeah, I think we need to. We, we we can work on a few things simultaneously. One is the communication front. I think it's pretty fair to say that we should have more open and transparent communications about you know what's going well, but also what's not going well. Uh, how things are going and some of the internal workings of, for example, vaccine distribution and vaccine allocation. I think that would alleviate a ton of concern in the general public. The second thing is that I would really hope that we could rapidly expand the role of primary care. There's about 8 trillion reasons why you would want to expand the role of primary care. That's family physicians and nurse practitioners that don't get the primary care lingo. Um, but certainly they they are involved, but their role should be expanded dramatically. I mean, uh, we can dive into that for a second, but basically... Yeah, just they, t tell me what that means. Expanded dramatically means nurse practitioners ought to be allowed to give the shots? Is that what you mean? I'm saying nurse practitioners and family physicians across the province should have a much greater role in administering the shots, primarily in their own offices. We do this in some parts of the province. There are plans to expand it throughout the province, but I would have hoped that we would have had massively expanded this by now. Um, people trust their family physician or their nurse practitioner. They, uh, they obviously can provide significant counseling, especially if there's any questions about the vaccine or sometimes we use the term hesitancy, although that's not entirely accurate all the time. There's fewer barriers going to uh, your local family physician's office. Um, there's there, the family physicians can certainly adjudicate who gets the vaccine in a data-driven and equitable manner. There's just a lot of good reasons to, uh, to mobilize family physicians across the province more than we're doing now. Why would that not yet have been done? Uh, I can't give you a good answer, unfortunately. It has been done. It has been started. Uh, there is certainly a, a want for this. Uh, it just hasn't, it hasn't been expanded. I, this might involve another conversation with people who are more knowledgeable on that area than I am, and I can only provide superficial uh, depth to this part of the conversation. But I, I do know enough that I, that, I, that I would say that we should be involving them more and rapidly expanding their role. Okay. Let's, uh, uh, all right, in, in fairness, let's look at the other side of the coin as well. You're trying to get... Oh, I'm not um, done. <laughs> there's oh, still you're more. Not, you're, you, there's still more on the downside. Okay. Yeah, We're yeah, all ears. Yeah. Let's go. So I think, so just to recap, number one, communications and greater transparency. Number two is expanding the role of primary care. Uh, number three is navigating the very convoluted sign-up system, right? You have a sign-up system for the pharmacies. You have a sign-up system for hospital-based vaccination programs in some cities. You have a sign-up system on the province. Um, and you also have uh, eligibility that's changing with time. In addition to that, you have pop-up centers and, uh, and uh, mobile uh, vaccination programs in high burden areas. Like it, it would be very helpful to have some you know, one- stop shopping one location where you could go click and have all the information at your fingertips in a very easy manner and sign up for something that you're eligible for or get on a waiting list very quickly i think uh i think we really have difficulties with the sign up system and like you've seen cottage industries spring up like there are 
uh, groups of people that will essentially act as a, a concierge to help uh, vulnerable populations and individuals who can't figure out the sign-up system to help them sign up, which you know is unfortunate because this is supposed to be as accessible as possible. So, like th- those are three areas I think we can we can really improve on. Now you're a member of the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force, and I presume you have brought these issues to the attention of your colleagues. Uh, what what's the reaction? I think people are pretty aware of this, and I, I you know I think when we sort of maybe pivot to the second part of what's going well, uh, I think some of this might reflect that there is attention being paid to these areas. And, you know, in fact, uh, we might start to see, you know, some ironing out of, of these issues. So for starters, the role of primary care is being expanded. I, I would have obviously wanted to see it expanded quickly and sooner and much broader than it is. But you know, this is, this is, this is happening. Um, I think, uh, you know, really ensuring that uh, neighborhoods that are disproportionately impacted by the virus and also by policies to curb the virus uh, really need to have more access to vaccine. That's baked into the second phase of the vaccine rollout. This is being operationalized now, you know, in a perfect world, it would be operationalized in a much swifter manner. But there still are some real constraints. One of the real constraints is vaccine. I mean, uh, so so you can allocate more vaccine to these areas. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot more than just putting vaccine, more vaccine into an area. Right? you really have to have um, very uh, careful and meaningful communication and very meaningful community engagement and do everything we can to lower barriers to actually getting the needle in the arm. So you've seen some programs spring up, for example, in uh, high density residential areas. There's you know door-to-door vaccination. In um, You've seen uh, vaccine clinics pop up in temples and community centers in, and, and really providing a, a hyper-local vaccine uh, distribution model for people that have barriers, either l- mobility barriers or language barriers or financial barriers or technology barriers, any barrier that prevents them from getting a, a vaccine. So those programs have started. Now, of course, I think in a perfect world, they'd be rapidly expanded, but they, they have started. So I think at least that's starting to go well. And then lastly, when you look at a numbers game, you know, week after week, we are vaccinating more and more people. More days than not, Ontario is vaccinating over 100,000 people per day, which is, again, it's it's good. It's not good enough. We're not there yet. I think we should really be aiming for north of 150,000 people per day. But, you know, certainly there has been some progress on the number of people vaccinated per day. I just want to make sure that obviously that this is done in an equitable manner and you know, people are getting vaccinated, but also the right people are getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more thing to follow up there before we look at the happier side of the way things are going, and that is, and you just have to trust me on this, that I'm not trying to start a food fight between you and your political colleagues, but when you say that one of the problems that you're encountering right now is ineffective communications, I infer from that that the Minister of Health the premier of the day, maybe the solicitor general, I don't know who, maybe the uh, medical officer of health, um, they're they're not speaking out of the same hymn book, so to speak, or they're getting mixed messages, or what is it? You tell me. Well, I think when, like, first, I think we have to recognize that this is truly a public health crisis. It is. I don't think you can see it any other way. And 
if you have a crisis, be it a public health crisis or any other crisis, you need to have crisis communication. And crisis communication means you need to have a daily update. The same person at the same place at the same time every day. And just talk about what's going on, what's new, what's going well, what's not going well, and how you're going to improve what's not going well. And, uh, and then take questions from the media or the general public. And the beautiful part is if you are asked a question that you don't know the answer to, guess what? You're going to be there exactly 24 hours later and you have 24 hours to figure it out and inform the public. And I think with a communication strategy like that, you really have more trust from the general public, especially when you need trust the most, right? This is at the end of the day, this is a massive public health initiative to vaccinate you know, 14 and a half million people or whoever is eligible in Ontario. And, and you, you really need trust and buy-in. And part of having trust and buy-in is having clear, open, transparent communications and, and just being honest about you know, what's going well, but also being co- totally honest about what's not going well and, and how you're going to improve that. All right. One of the things that we have heard, and I noticed this was not on your list of criticisms, so maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it just needs explaining. So I want to put this to you. We have heard from critics who say, why are there hundreds of thousands of doses sitting in freezers while appointments are being canceled? First of all, is that in fact the case? And second of all, if it is, is it a problem? So this is like those old Facebook updates from the early 2000s, right? It's complicated, right? The the nuance is important. (laughs) And I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, uh, there, there certainly are vaccines in freezers, but let's dig a little deeper here. We have three different vaccines in the province at the moment. One is Pfizer, one is Moderna, and one is AstraZeneca. We get our Pfizer shipments once a week. We get roughly 400,000 doses of Pfizer once a week. When Pfizer comes in, and it comes in like clockwork, it comes in regularly. There's We don't have any delayed shipments of Pfizer these days. When it comes in, it takes about a day or so to get distributed throughout the province, and then it gets administered in mass vaccine clinics. By the end of the week, there's very little Pfizer left. There's some, you always have a little bit for wiggle room. Usually they keep a day or so just in case, but by and large, it the burn rate through Pfizer is quick. Moderna is the other mRNA vaccine that we get access to. And we get hundreds of thousands of doses of that delivered every other week. One of the issues with Moderna is that for you know several different reasons that are well above my pay grade is that there are delays in shipment. There are. And it's challenging because the burn rate through Moderna is also pretty quick. Like at the end of two weeks, you don't have a ton of Moderna left in the freezer. You just you just don't. It, it gets used up. But you, you have a little bit of wiggle room in case there are supply chain issues or delays. And then you can use that Moderna up so that you, you don't have to cancel appointments. But there are delays in Moderna, unfortunately. And that, that certainly has impacted some part of the uh, of the rollout. Uh, sadly, there's also you know, recently announced and announced in the past, uh, sometimes when you get a shipment of Moderna, you don't get as much as you wanted. Uh, and, and in fact, that's happening right now. So that's that's also problematic. Um, the third vaccine is AstraZeneca. We don't we have a big contract for AstraZeneca, but we don't actually get AstraZeneca with any regular frequency. We, we've had a couple of boluses of AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca is administered by uh, primary care, so that means nurse practitioners and and family physicians in a few parts of the province. It's also administered in soon to be or up to 1,400 pharmacies scattered throughout the province. 
there was a, a few hundred that went online, then a few hundred that, that are either actively coming online or now online. It should be about 1,400 by now and about 1,500 by the end of the month. So AstraZeneca is administered by primary care and, and pharmacies. It's available to everyone who's 55 years of age and older. But the, the burn rate, how much AstraZeneca we consume of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of doses of that is actually much, much, much slower compared to the Pfizer and the Moderna. And, you know, we could explore reasons as to why the burn rate through AstraZeneca is much slower, but it is much slower. So, you know, going back to the question, when you talk about vaccines and freezers, so, you know, when you get a big shipment of, for example, uh, Pfizer at, at the beginning of the week, there's 400,000 doses right there. We take a snapshot, you know, you have maybe a little bit of residual Pfizer, a little bit of residual Moderna, uh, and you have you know, a bunch of AstraZeneca as well, when you take a snapshot in time, yeah, you've got 1.1 million doses of vaccine that are sitting there unused. But of course, if you follow that stockpile throughout the week and you follow your Pfizer throughout the week and your Moderna throughout the week, and of course the next week because Moderna is administered every two weeks, those go those go pretty quick. They're, they're all allocated. They all go pretty quick. And it, it really is largely the, the AstraZeneca that's, that's sticking around. I know that's a long-winded answer, but 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 that's the answer. So the question no, that is, act- how do you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that actually that actually makes sense and that clarifies it. Um, and I guess we should finish up on this, which is where you left off, and that's AstraZeneca. And I do wonder. And I, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm over fifty-five. I got my first AstraZeneca shot. Um, you know, I how do I put this? Uh, I interviewed somebody on the agenda who said you got two different risks to weigh here. You can run the risk of getting COVID-19 because you are nervous about getting the AZ shot, or you can deal with the risk of potential blood clots with the AZ shot. Uh, so I got the shot and I said, that that's a risk I'm happier to take as opposed to the risk of getting COVID-19 and dying altogether. How much reputational damage do you think AstraZeneca has suffered because of the whole blood clot issue? Tremendous. I think it's had tremendous reputational damage and it goes well beyond the blood clot issue. It starts with their first clinical trial when they really had a, messed up the dosing and had some places get one dose and other places get a second dose and they mushed all these studies together and pretended that it was a, a robust clinical trial. But it was it was pretty sloppy science. And that was that was their first mishap. Then we've, you know, in Canada, again, people I'm leaving out value judgments here, but we've said in Canada we're not going to give this to people over the age of 65. Then we are going to give it to people over the age of 65. Then we're not going to give it to people under the age of 55. That, those policy changes, you know, you can defend or criticize them, but I think it's fair to say that we have to communicate any changes in a very effective manner so that we don't further erode trust in the vaccine. And I think many would argue that perhaps those communica- the, the communication of those policy changes was, was not ideal. The third is the company came out with a, another clinical trial, really well done, really well done, uh, or, or 30,000 people enrolled. It, w- it wasn't sloppy like their first clinical trial. Um, and they published some interim results through a press release. And look, th- th- that'll look great, 79% efficacy. But their independent data safety monitoring board called them out publicly and said, you're not using the right data. That data isn't up to date. You have to use the right data. And this was, I don't know if people remember this. This was only a few weeks ago. 
But like the company said, oh, no, no, this is the right data. We'll come up with our new data in 48 hours. They came up with their new data, which was updated, that demonstrated something like almost identical, 74% efficacy. But this was completely preventable. Like you're in the international media getting called out by your data safety monitoring board for nothing, for, for absolutely, for, for, for a 79 versus a 74% efficacy headline. Like it was ridiculous. And again, it all erodes public trust. And then of course comes the blood clots. You can't ignore them. They're rare. It's not fair to say that to say that we know what the true incidence is, but it's pretty fair to say that we know that they're rare. It has to be contextualized. We can contextualize risk. You know, we know that COVID-19 is a pretty dangerous infection. We know that the variants of concern are really harming people, even younger people. Um, we know that these vaccines are really, really effective in reducing the risk of getting in the infection. And if people are infected, reducing the risk of landing in hospital or dying. We have to contextualize risk in a much better way. You can't ignore the blood clots, you can't, but you have to discuss them and contextualize them and enable people to make good decisions for themselves. And of course, many will decide not to get the vaccine, but I think many more would decide to get the vaccine if we communicated risk and contextualized it in an effective manner. And I don't which, think we have. Which you, so, well, which you have just done. So is the advice still from you as we sit here talking about this, the risk of taking AstraZeneca is less significant than the risk of getting COVID-19. So take the jab. Is that still your position? Yes, essentially that is. But here's, I, I would say, <laughs> but wait, there's more. I would say that given the current context that we're in right now, so, you know, obviously we always have to timestamp our conversations. It's April 16th as we're talking right now. We have record high numbers of COVID-19 in the country. We have record high numbers of COVID-19 in Ontario. Ontario's healthcare system is not about to be stretched beyond capacity. It is stretched beyond capacity, as in we are canceling operations uh, to care for and uh, to get all hands on deck. We are calling in the troops, redeploying staff, admitting adults into pediatric intensive care units. Like it's pretty fair to say, you're about to put people into tents outside of several major hospitals in Toronto. It's fair to say that we have stretched beyond capacity. And you have a vaccine that can truly save lives. Why not just give it to everyone age 18 years and up as per Health Canada with informed consent? You act, you know, inform people and say, listen, you can choose to get this if you want. Here is the risk that we know of for adverse events. And, you know, in the current context of truly, you know, widespread community transmission and hospital systems stretched beyond capacity, you know, you can decide whether this is something that you're interested in taking or not. I bet we would not, we would just, our, our, our stockpile would evaporate overnight. Hmm. Well, that is clear and concise communications. So we appreciate having you on for that very reason. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That was Dr. Isaac Bogosh, epidemiologist and member of Ontario's Vaccine Distribution Task Force. And um, I will simply say that if the government had uh, that level of clarity in communications, I think they would be suffering a lot fewer problems right now. Amen to that. This guy can communicate. He sure can. All right, folks, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that for you immediately after we ask you, as we always do, to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do like to know what you liked, what you didn't, and try to help make this podcast just a little bit better. 
Here's a note we got from Michael Healy on Twitter, uh, who wrote, Shout out to the On Poly podcast with J.M. McGrath and Spaken, a great spin-free resource for all things Ontario politics. Hey, thank you, Michael. That is very encouraging. Here now, my quote of the week, and it's from Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who held two news conferences yesterday, the second of which called on Doug Ford to resign as premier. Here's our exchange, starting with my question. My question is, it is uh, impossible for me to believe that the premier of Ontario is going to take advice on whether to stay in office or resign from the leader of a party that is not officially constituted and the leader doesn't have a seat. So what is the value in making the announcement that you just did? Because leaders have to lead, Steve, and Doug's not doing it. Doug's not a leader. And we're all suffering as a result of it. Every single person in this province is. And this is a life and death circumstances. This is not, this is not the same as any other political decision or political uh, issue that might come up. This is life and death in this province right now. And there are examples in Western democracies of leaders in life and death situations who've recognized they don't have what it takes to get the job done. That's Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberals, who went on to say, Neville Chamberlain stepped aside for Winston Churchill, so there is precedent for a leader stepping aside if, in the judgment of the party, there's a better option elsewhere in caucus. My quote of the week comes from the modeling briefing that we were discussing at the top of the podcast. Uh, this is a quote from Dr. Adelstein Brown of the University of Toronto, uh, who asked the public, and I know that it's been a long year and it can be um, it can be easy to lose track of what we have all gone through. Uh, and this is Dr. Brown reminding us all uh, to notice what is going on and to act accordingly. Cases have risen. Hospitals have filled up. And across Ontario, it is very clear we are very much in the third wave of COVID-19. And the numbers are still rising. But the biggest problem we now face may be that we're just too tired to notice. So I'm begging you as part of the team to notice. Notice that our hospitals can no longer function normally. They are bursting at their seams, we're setting up field hospitals, and we're separating critically ill patients from their families by helicoptering them across the province for care. That was Dr. Alcine Steine-Brown uh, speaking at Queen's Park on Friday. And that was episode 108 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, editing by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, and these words seem particularly important these days, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>